Coming up in this podcast, election overview, Bob Hawke's passing, retail challenges, hotels and tourism, housing construction, Andrew Forrest's big payday, Danny Saros, and our special feature on mining projects. Welcome to Mark My Words, the weekly podcast from Business News, with Mark Pownall and Mark Beyer discussing the important business news and data stories from Western Australia. Welcome to our weekly podcast and welcome Mark Beyer. Uh, Mark, first up, there's an election this weekend, uh, if listeners hadn't noticed. <laughs> yep, and um, it's going to be interesting. Uh, the opinion polls tend to have Bill Shorten in front, um, but it's a pretty tight race. I've been talking to some people who are close to the action, and uh, you know, certainly there's an expectation of a Labor win, but no one's uh, guaranteeing that outcome. And a lot of seats that are still very tight, um, including in Western Australia. Um, so some sitting members of parliament, um, including Attorney General Christian Porter, uh, amongst others, um, and Ken Wyatt, a minister, um, they're amongst uh, quite a lot of seats around the country that are really on a knife edge. Um, and we could get this scenario where a handful of marginal seats in Western Australia may well be pivotal to the outcome. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, a few things in that. First of all, I, I, my sense with elections is we often do this. We kind of go, we think there's a clear winner. Then as we get closer, the polls get closer, and we start to think it's going to be closer than it is. And then on the day, we go, oh, actually, the polls from a little while back were actually pretty spot on. Um, another interesting element in this is uh, the postal vote stuff. They're talking about... Four million people have postal voted. That's or, an amazing number, or, isn't it? Or early voted anyway. And they don't count those until like a couple of days. They don't start counting those until, you know, Monday or something like that. That's my understanding. Now, that used to be something that may or may not uh, be crucial in a tight vote. And those tight votes were took extra counting anyway. So, But the, suddenly when you start talking about, large, you know, that's what a quarter of the voting population yeah, you, you might see some a lot of decisions made quite late in the piece. So maybe we won't know as much as we think we'll know. But, you know, we're used to, we're used to in WA having the election result by the time you turn the television on. That's right. So, and uh, yeah, look, you know, there's a, a question there for the Electoral Commission as to whether they need to rethink the way they go about counting those votes. Totally. Yeah. Um, because I think, actually, the early voting is great. I, you know, it... it if that suits people, what does it matter? If, as long as everyone votes. Although last night I was having a conversation and apparently someone who has postal voted has now passed away. <laughs> Is that right? So that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, well, I still enjoy the ritual of going down to the local primary school. Yes. Getting a sausage sizzle or going to the cake stall, getting all the um, how to vote cards and just seeing the colour of the occasion. Yeah, but it's way more pleasant when a quarter of the people aren't turning up and you're just spending a little less time in a queue, right? <laughs> anyway, uh, and Mark, uh, just uh, kind of a, a interesting timing and quite a big moment politically. Uh, Bob Hawke passing away. Um, you know, there's got some, there's some West Australian angle in that, of course, because he, he grew up here. That's right. Um, yeah, look, I mean, a, a very a significant moment, I guess, in Australia's political history. Um, yeah, look, he, he was educated um, at Perth Modern School and at the University of Western Australia. Um, got a Rhodes Scholarship uh, while he was there. Um, so very successful and of course became well known as a union leader uh, before becoming Prime Minister in 1983. 
And in fact, I'll give away a bit of my age here because 1983 was just after I graduated from university and my first job was with the Treasury Department in Canberra. Mm. And I recall that my very first week at Treasury, I went for a bit of a stroll around uh, the area outside our building and it was right next to the old Parliament House. And I just happened to be wandering past at the moment when the Hawke Ministry were standing on the front steps getting their official portrait taken. Yeah, right. Um, and that was an exciting time to be working in Treasury because uh, Paul Keating was our minister. Yeah. And, you know, Hawke and Keating um, for several years were a great team and I think widely acknowledged um, led a lot of very important reforms yeah. that have stood Australia in good stead uh, for subsequent and what, years. And what were the first of those would have been floating the Aussie dollar, would it? That's right. Yeah, which yeah. is, you know, we take for granted now, but... Wow, what a big change that was. And deregulating the banking system. Yeah. Um, well, you know, in light of the Royal Commission, a bit of a mixed bag. Uh, but certainly a, a, a shift towards um, economic reform and, and market-driven reform. That was a big theme then. Mm. And, you know, it, it gives us fond memories of the days when there were stable, uh, long-serving uh, leadership at the head of our governments um, and, and teams that worked together very constructively. Um, things have changed a lot. So, you know, Hawke and Keating did a lot. And then, of course, John Howard and uh, Peter Costello were also a very effective team for a long time. Yeah. Um, so we all cross our fingers and hope. But you say stability, and uh, it is interesting that Bob Hawke was... Uh, now, forgive me for not being entirely uh, knowledgeable here. He was either the first Labor Prime Minister or the first Prime Minister to, de to be deposed whilst he was still Prime Minister. Well, that's right, yes. So there so, was a falling know, out. There was. Paul and, Keating's ambition got the better of him. Paul Keating sat in the back benches, having had a crack, sat in the back benches, sniped and ultimately got him, as we have seen numerous times in the last 10 years. Mm. <laughs> yep. So, you know, it could be that, that in some ways they set the precedent for what we've seen, uh, and, and it was, in fact, John Howard that, uh, that stopped that momentum for that kind of... Uh, volatility and leadership. Anyway, I, I kid really there because, I mean, it was an amazing period. And just a brief mention, I'm not going to name names here, but I did, I sat uh, next to a prominent Perth lawyer who said his father uh, in his first year at university uh, was in first year with Bob Hawke, uh, spent every day down at the, uh, playing billiards, I think was the word used, not pool, uh, uh, rather than studying and was surprised when he failed his first year and Bob Hawke got a Rhodes Scholarship. <laughs> <laughs> Which, uh, you know, shows either the, uh, the brains of the guy or the, or, the, or the ability to do two things at one time. <laughs> um, now, Mark, uh, it's tough out there in retail land. Um, we've had a few stories uh, online this week, mixed reports from that sector. Yeah, and look, the latest news that we reported, uh, Matt McKenzie had a good story about a couple of businesses at Yagan Square uh, shutting down. Uh, one of them, uh, Big Earl's X The Weekend, quite a colourful name, uh, but a Mexican restaurant. Another place called Primal Pantry is also shut down. And look, as you say, this comes on top of many businesses um, having to restructure or shut down some of their outlets around Perth. Mm. Um, and you know, the overall figures for retail spending, very soft. Yeah. This is an issue right across the country. Um, 
and it, more specifically, um, Matt spoke to quite a few of the people at Yagan Square. So, you know, a landmark development, um, great piece of architecture, and there's a lot of foot traffic that goes past Yagan Square, but evidently the issue is a lot of those people don't go inside. Yeah. And in fact, may not even realise what is inside. You know, there's a big food hall in there. It's, it's quite different from your traditional food hall. It's not sort of big and opened and bright. And uh, that seems to be an issue. Yeah. Uh, they're not know, getting the foot traffic they were hoping for. I think, um, well, look, you know, I, I, I guess the architecture, the look of it and the feel of it and everything in isolation is great. But if there's two parts to it, one, people don't, aren't attracted in, they can't see the offering. And secondly, when they're in there, yeah, look, I'm not, I'm not sure it's my idea of a, a great place to kind of hang out. And maybe you're not meant to hang out in there. Maybe you're meant to go in there, get some food and go outside into the, into the square. But it's a bit of a fail. And I don't think it's just that food hall. I think there's some, a couple of the restaurants and bars are struggling there. Having said that, uh, there is no doubt that the, 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 the main bar slash restaurant at the front there, Shoe, is an enormous success. So it is noticeable when you walk past and it is always busy. So the it old shows saying about property, location. Location, it's all location. About location. Totally. That's right. And I think yeah. also, Mark, it's 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 embedded in that horseshoe bridge and there's an exit at the kind of I'm not sure what you call it. Is it do you have an apex of a short horseshoe? I'm not quite <laughs> sure. At the top of the circumference of whatever it is. Uh, that that uh, that goes to a bridge to nothing to to overlook a railway station. There's the thoroughfare is not east west, it's north south, and uh, maybe that's the problem. It's just uh, it's it's a little um, side pond in an, in an otherwise fast moving stream. And a question here for the architects who are listening: as you, we've talked about the fact that Yagan Square has won awards and it, it does look spectacular, um, but in this sense doesn't work as well as people had hoped. Another example that I'm reminded of, uh, 140 William. That's another prominent CBD development. It won some quite a few architecture awards and yet uh, six months or 12 months after it opened, they had to completely redo the ground level retail offering. Yep, after most of the first businesses that were there went bust. Because it didn't work, that's right. And now it works well, I think. It's pretty popular and, uh, yeah, you're right. There just wasn't the, the traffic. They didn't understand, well, they misjudged how the foot traffic would go. And speaking of retail, um, another story that was well read during the week, uh, Dan Wilkie um, talked about several prominent retailers being lured from King Street to the new Rain Square development. Um, so Tiffany & Co, Kalis Jewellery, Louis Vuitton. So these are the kind of brands that have helped to define King Street. Mm. Um, but the developers down at Rain Square, they've spent a lot of money. That's another example. I was going to say, another example of a new building that had to get redeveloped because it didn't work. I think that's right. Um, so look, they're obviously um, the developers there. If, if you've got that sort of prominent uh, retail brand, as those three evidently do, um, there's a lot of people knocking on your door saying, come down to our shops. Yeah. So that's quite a shift. So a challenge for the folks at King Street, um, but also you know, a very significant new investment at Rain Square. So it'll be interesting to see how that one pans out. And there's a suggestion there, isn't there, that, that so um, obviously retail is still a core um, 
part of you know many of these property developments. Very important, even if retailers are struggling. Uh, you know, why would you move from King Street to something like that? I suspect there might be some great rental offers, and if things aren't going great in where you are there, you may as well go and reset where everyone else is resetting and do it at lower prices. So potentially that's it. But then again, it's also near Yagan Square. There's a lot more foot traffic going through that part of the world now than there was a year ago. Uh, maybe that's part of it as well, that the, the centre of Perth is re, re-shifting again, back back sort of east again to, to the middle, um, having moved west over the last couple of decades as uh, as the oil and gas industry took everything up towards that QV1 kind of end of things. Um, now, there's been a uh, hotels construction boom. Um, that seems to be over. The Tourism Council put out an interesting report during the week. They've uh, crunched the numbers. We've got about 16 new hotels in Perth over the last few years, 2,500 rooms. Uh, that's a 37% increase in the number of rooms in Perth, so quite amazing growth. Mm. There's another five projects still under construction, um, so almost 1,500 more rooms yet to come on the market. Mm. So against that backdrop, perhaps not surprisingly, uh, what they've found is that um, over the past 12 months, um, there's no new construction that's commenced. Um, There's quite a few other projects that have got development approval, um, where some sort of plans have been released, um, but nothing getting underway. Um, And, you know, against that backdrop of so much growth, that's not really surprising. Um, But gee, you know, there's an amazing um, improvement in the number of choices that we've got here in Perth for hotel accommodation. Yeah, and all, you know, belated, right? So the government wanted, now if I remember rightly, you're saying 4,000 new rooms there, roughly? Collectively, that would be 4,000. Now, they didn't want 4,000, did they? I thought they took 2,000 new rooms at one point, or maybe it was 4,000. I can't quite remember the numbers now, but there was a big push in the middle of the boom. We didn't have enough hotel rooms, and there was all that planning, and there was all sorts of advantages given to people to to do hotels. So that's obviously worked in terms of incentives uh, and the market, you know, a latent effect. People make decisions in a very bullish market. But here we go. We've got you know, a a large amount of supply coming on in a difficult moment. We've got international tourists are falling and WA's not getting any particular growth there. Uh, We've got Airbnb competing as well, which I think we forget because we don't kind of notice that so much in the city. Um, You know, it's it's interesting times. And and I have to highlight the Richardson Hotel, (laughs) which was operating during that time, has turned itself into a... uh, an aged care facility. So a uh, fascinating time to have this happen. I also got some good insight on this during the week because I had a lunch uh, with some prominent Perth business leaders. Uh, this was through EY as part of their Entrepreneur of the Year program. And one of the people who's previously been named a champion of entrepreneurship is Peter Prenteval, so one of the largest um, hotel owners across Western Australia. And Peter was, he's pretty positive about the longer term outlook for Western Australia. Um, He looks at all the investment that's happened in recent years, including in new hotels, plus, you know, the transformational projects like Yagan Square and Elizabeth Quay and uh, Optus Stadium and the airport upgrades. So he said, you know, a lot of work has been done. Um, He's quite encouraged as well by the government getting a better focus on tourism. 
um, after you know, it was an area that didn't get focused for a long time. Um, so Peter's actually proceeding with some substantial investments in his own group. Mm. Um, you know, they've got this rolling program of upgrading their hotels, uh, but this month they're about to kick off the big redevelopment of the Rottnest Hotel. So that'll go from 18 rooms up to 80. Yeah, so they're going to spend about $40 million over there. Great. Um, he's, I guess he's put out the challenge, though, to the government. We still need to focus on marketing of Western Australia. Um, we still need to get more airline links, and he'd love to see China Eastern fly in um, and get more links into China, as well as you know Japan, India. And the other challenge he threw out is around activation, you know, activities. If we get all these tourists here, what are they going to do? Mm. Or turn that around, let's create some action here to lure more tourists. Oh, goodness me. Attractions. <laughs> but surely we just anyone who's got a bright idea, we've got to bury them in red tape and make sure it never happens. Isn't that the way we do things? Uh, historically, yes. <laughs> uh, the government is trying to turn that around. Um, they have talked about a new task force they're setting up to uh, try and pave the way for new tourist attractions. Yeah. But um, should have happened a long time ago. Yeah, totally. Um, but also, Peter Prendival was talking about investment up in the Pilbara. Um, he's got hotel and the Kimberley, he's got hotels in um, Caratha, Broome, Port Hedland. Um, they're going gangbusters, uh, particularly, particularly the ones in the Pilbara. Yeah. And that's more off the back of the commercial activity up there. Of course. And you know, all the mining investment that we'll talk a bit about later. Yeah. Uh, and Mark, can I just, uh, dare I pull you up on something there, just in terms of, uh, we're talking about those hotel developments before and the fact that there's no new supply coming on and yet you've got a project about to start with 80 new rooms or they're going from 18 to 80. Now, is that because you're not including Rotnest in Perth? Um, it, no, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> and not that I, not that we should, I suppose. Or, or, or I'm looking at the uh, the list here that the Tourism Council have included in their report. Okay. No, that's 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 Perth. They're focused on. Okay, good. Um, just just confirming. Only Perth yep. and not everywhere else. Yep. All right. Good. Good to know. Uh, now, what else did you pick up from that lunch? Uh, yeah, look, there was there was a pretty positive theme from a lot of the people. Um, so Rod Jones, who of course built Navitas as a great success story in education services, he's been chairing Study Perth, and he's really encouraged by the progress that he's seen over the past twelve months in terms of getting a bigger focus on international education, and that dovetails very neatly with tourism. Of course, if you get the students here their family and friends tend to follow down. Yeah. So, yeah, he's pretty encouraged by the support he's getting from the government and there was some extra money in that for that um, in in the budget recently. Um, on the flip side, some challenges. Uh, Dale Orcock, um, one of the biggest home builders in WA, that sector is doing it really tough. Mm. Um, housing sure construction is, is uh, really soft. Um, Dale Orcock's business diversified to Victoria um, almost a decade ago. Um, he does 45% of his housing in Victoria these days, or specifically in Melbourne. And in fact, he's planning to diversify or, or expand that operation out into the regional cities in Melbourne and also into um, high or sort of um, multi-dwelling um, or multi-unit dwellings. Yeah, gotcha. So, you know, he sees that as a growth area. And then another theme that came through, you know, other people there were John Rothwell and uh, Gordon Martin. Um, the pressure coming through in terms of the supply of skilled labour. 
they're all seeing that yeah. you know whether it's home building or shipbuilding or hospitality um, right across those industries they're really concerned about that yep and the fact that um, migration schemes have been tightened up so much there isn't really a pressure valve there anymore no it's a big problem and uh, I think I think this state government willingly shifted us from being a, considered a regional market to being, a, you know, Perth become a capital city market in terms for immigration, which is way tougher for someone to come in, come here. Now, I'm sure that suits some people in certain industries uh, if you've got a job and, and everything like that. But from that skills perspective, it's very hard for business to bring people in. Um, and, you know, paying people more because they're skilled doesn't solve your problem of needing skills so and you won't if you don't bring people in you won't get that growth in housing and if you don't have the growth in housing you won't have the growth in retail it's all just it's all synergistic so it's a bit of a worry uh sounds like a great lunch anyway and i look forward to reading more of that details um and i might say uh, we've done that lunch gee it must be 10 years or something like that we've been doing that lunch with ey would that be yes about that's right? right it's been a fabulous uh um uh regular and annual event and uh, I've done a few you've done a few it's been fantastic um, now Fortescue Metals Group has announced a 60 cents per share final dividend now that means a big payday for Andrew Forrest and interests associated with him yeah look the market was taken a bit by surprise by the scale of this dividend um, so yeah a 60 cent per share final dividend so for the year their payout is 90 cents uh, per share um, now, Andrew Forrest, he's actually upped his stake in Fortescue. He now owns a bit over 35% of the company. So this latest dividend comes to a nice $650 million for him. Right. Um, over the year, um, his total dividends are nearly a billion dollars. There you go. So just quite phenomenal numbers. Yeah. And it tells you something about the uh, the powerhouse that is the iron ore industry in the Pilbara. Mm. Um, now, the timing of this was interesting. Um, these are franked credit, uh, franked dividends. So, of course, this comes ahead of the uh, election. I was going to um, say, exactly. Labor uh, planning to change the rules around um, franked uh, dividends. Yep. Um, so they've got in ahead of that. Um, but in addition, um, Elizabeth Gaines, the CEO, has just talked about how strong the business is performing and how strong their cash flow is. The iron ore price, it's up around um, 96 or 97 US dollars per tonne. Now, that's the highest it's been for about five years. Um, and it's it's holding there quite solidly for a while. Mm. So um, they're doing very nicely at the moment. Yeah, look, what an interesting story, right? And, and I know that people will concentrate on the billion dollar payday, as we have, right? That's still an amazing, amazing number when you talk about you set up a business around 2004, 2003, 2004, and, and you know, so what's that, 16 years, 16, 15, 16 years later, you've got not just a billions of dollars in assets, but it's actually paying you a billion dollars in, you know, income. Uh, but, you know, think about how Andrew Forrest, where things were at, what was that, four or five years ago? Was it 2012 or 2014 yeah, was, was? When the, the iron ore price crashed. And he had... I mean, he that was he was nearly gone, right? I mean, he had to renegotiate with all his creditors, and it was a very close run thing. So you know, and he went and saved that business with a, you know, obviously he had 
people helping him, but he built it, he nearly lost it. I kind of go, well, why shouldn't he get a payday? And I know people say, oh, the inequality of all that, but the other side of it is he spends a fair bit of it on philanthropy and good causes and, well, in and, fact, you know, a lot on that. In fact, yeah. there was a, he, he and uh, Nicola Forrest, his wife, uh, put out an update just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, they've announced another $650 million of donations there you go. through their Mindaroo Foundation. So collectively, uh, they've pledged about $1.5 billion through Mindaroo. Great. That's a whole lot more than I see other people doing. Yeah. No, no, look. I, so, you know, all credit. I'm uh, I'm all for people. If they've put the hard yards in and, and the circumstances were there and everyone knew the rules, hey, if you... If you make, you know, he's the one that took the risk. He's the one that got the investors together. He's the one who picked the moment. You know, there's plenty of others that would be happy to have made it, but he got there, all, all credit. Um, now, uh, property developer Danny Saros has decided to call it quits, and uh, unusually, he shut his business down. Look, I first met Danny a uh, good 10 odd years ago, and you know, his business was one of the major apartment builders across Perth at that time, and for a good period of time. Um, so his group did about 25 apartment projects across Perth. It was one of the early apartment groups, really, wasn't it, here in this town? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, also he was quite proud that they made an early push into environmental sustainability, mm-hmm. you know, the kind of things that are, I think, standard now. Um, but he felt as though he was one of the early leaders in that space. Um, but look... Um, as you say, the business is being wound up. Um, they did hit some financial issues with one of their projects um, at Churchlands last year, but they have said that all creditors will be paid in full. Um, Danny's also had cancer scares, so he said, uh, you know, he's, he's shifting his focus. Mm. Um, and look, you know, the market has moved on. Um, other groups, you know, Finbar is a listed company, there's still a big apartment developer. Paul Blackburn's business, you know, become a much more prominent uh, player. Um, and then you've got you know, East Coast players like Mervac quite active in the market. Uh, but look, you know, people that will drive around Perth and they'll see a lot of apartment buildings and they'll see the, the legacy that Pissarros Property Group has left us. Yeah. So, a uh, significant contribution. Uh, fair enough. Uh, now, Mark, our special report this week is mining projects. Uh, that's obviously a big feature for us. $20 billion or more in new projects. Does that constitute a boom? We're getting close, I reckon, to using that word again. Um, look, we've got a, a project... Do we want to? <laughs> <laughs> we want a sustainable boom, don't yeah, we? we don't, want it we to go on and on and on in a nice, right. comfortable way. <laughs> and, and look, you know, I think there's good reason for thinking that may well be the case. Um, this uh, special report is off the back of a very comprehensive database that we've built um, as part of our BNIQ search engine. You can go on there, it's on our website, and you'll get a list of every major project um, underway or planned in Western Australia, not just in mining, but you know, infrastructure and property and so on. Uh, we've got nearly 60 mining projects on that database, um, dominated at the big end by iron ore and lithium, um, but also you know, gold and nickel and mineral sands. So there's uh, a lot going on, um, and those big ones, um, yeah, they're generating a lot of activity for businesses around Western Australia. Um, I mean, just uh, today, uh, this morning, Rio Tinto announced a couple of big contracts for its Kodaitari project, 
um, Worley and NRW working on that one as well. Um, so if you're in that mining services space, um, yeah, now is a good time. Um, I think as we've discussed before, a lot of this investment is simply to sustain volumes of output up in the Pilbara, yeah. um, in the iron ore space that is. Yep. Um, so you know, every few years, BHP and Rio and Fortescue are going to have to develop a big new mining um, area simply to sustain their, their volumes. Yep. Um, lithium, I mean, you know, that's very exciting. Um, it, it's hard to see it being sustained at quite the current volume of investment, um, but you know, that's, that's a real boost for the state. So, you know, exciting opportunities there. Um, Adrian Rousso that put this together did a couple of other stories as well which show uh, where the opportunities lie. We talk about the big iron ore miners, but we found a whole bunch of junior iron ore companies who've had projects um, in mothballs, so to speak, for about the past six years they're all dusting off their plans at the moment because <laughs> yeah, they're go. looking at that iron ore price and they're thinking, well, hang on, yeah. maybe these projects are going to become economic again. Yeah. So, you know, engineering firms are out there looking more closely at these things and they're reviewing their feasibility studies. So it'll be nice to see if that uh, surge in iron ore activity does extend to some other players in the market. Um, and the other one, um, potash. Now, this is a potential for a big new industry for Western Australia. Uh, basically, it's a, a feed into fertiliser yep. for the farming industry. Um, like many things, um, there are deposits all around Western Australia. Um, there's nearly a dozen groups out there uh, all vying to develop these projects. They're all seeing the market has sort of shifted. They're seeing a big opportunity, um, a lot of investment in that area as well. So it's nice to see that diversification of opportunity so a really good, thorough uh, wrap-up from Adrian in our next edition. Appreciate that, Mark. Uh, our Rising Stars Awards are uh, on at the end of June. Uh, we still have applica- You can still apply to uh, get your business in there. It's open to private and public companies that are showing high growth, big, small, and any sector. If you want to get involved uh, and get your business in there and have a chance to win and get acknowledged, then call Rosemary at Business News 92882100. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Mark My Words with Mark Powell and Mark Bayer from Business News. For more information, please go to businessnews.com.au forward slash podcasts. And to receive these regularly, search for Business News WA in iTunes or SoundCloud.